0: And that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, lewdness, which they have practiced. In the 12th chapter of Corinthians, Paul, remember, has been proving his apostolic calling. Paul points to The revelations that he received from Christ in verses 1 through 6. The thorn in his flesh in verses 7 through 11. Apostolic signs and wonders in verses 11 through 18. And now, and now, and now, his willingness and courage in dealing with sin in verses 19 through 21. We're very, very close to the end of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. And in these last few verses, Paul will make an appeal for repentance in verses 19 through 21. A statement of plans in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And then he's going to give a farewell benediction in chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Paul's appeal to repent was preceded by a reminder in verses 11 through 13. He told the people that he had suffered. He talked about his apostolic authority, an appeal to friendship and relationship, his appeal as a loving father to his unloving children in verses 14 through 19, and regret, regret that he may not find them repentant, but rather unrepentant unclean, impure, still acting like pagans, or we might even say unbelievers. And so why does it take courage to deal with sin? Remember that there's been a conflict between Paul and some of the people who were in the Corinthian church. Conflicts require courage. Because conflicts handled in a wrong way can damage Or permanently destroy friendship and fellowship in the body of Christ. And you don't have to be a Christian for very long or even a human being for very long. And realize that there's going to be conflict. Whenever you walk into a room with somebody else, there is going to be invariably somebody who will disagree with you. If if you say there is a God, are there people who are going to say that there isn't a God? if you talk about friendship or fellowship, if you talk about forgiveness and hope, if you talk about sin and salvation, if you talk about the past, the present, the future, if you talk about almost anything about anything, it can be the source of conflict and contention. Are all conflicts and problems rooted in sin? Well, I'm going to tell you that the answer invariably, after you've made every excuse why it isn't, It still remains a a problem of sin. There are conflicts that are rooted in part in language, in, in culture, misunderstandings. But when Paul brings up these subjects, it brings up yet another subject. And that is... How are we to think about the conflict between Paul and the Corinthians? And why are we even asking that question? The reason, of course, it's going to bring to our own mind and our own heart the way that he deals with the conflict should give us a clue in how we're going to deal with conflicts. Was the conflict for Paul and the Corinthians in part due to the fact that Paul was a Jew and the Corinthians were Gentiles? I'm going to suggest to you that there might have been some problems related to the fact that Paul was a Jew and the Corinthians were Gentiles, but I don't think that's the heart of the problem because Paul doesn't invite the Corinthians to become Jews. He doesn't invite the Corinthians to think like a Jew or act like a Jew or, or embrace Judaism. Does the conflict lie in part on the question of authority? I'm going to suggest to you that it does in fact lie in part to the question of authority. Is Paul an apostle of the Lord Jesus? The answer is yes. Does he have the message of the Lord Jesus? The answer is yes. Does he encourage the people to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth according to the apostolic message? The answer is yes. Are there those who doubt his apostolic authority? The answer is yes. And because they doubt his apostolic authority, they doubt his apostolic message. And because they doubt his authority and they doubt his message, they also begin to doubt whether or not the way that Paul presents his message and the emphasis that Paul makes, whether or not it's valid. Remember the Corinthians glory in miracles they glory in revelation they glory in position they glory in power yes some in Corinth are guilty of following false teachers with a false message and because some are guilty of following false teachers with a false message it has prevented them from becoming mature But it's been way worse for others. It hasn't just stunted their growth in Christ. Some have resorted to carnality and sensuality. By the way, if you ever do a careful reading of 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians, you'll discover in the first book of Corinthians, Paul discusses the problem of cliques or factions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. You'll remember, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Then there were problems of carnality in chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. Then problems of immorality in chapter 5 verses 1 through 13. This Problem of cliques, carnality, and immorality led some in the Corinthian church to accuse Paul and doubt his credentials, his credibility, his character. And so now Paul appeals to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19, it's going to be an appeal to repent, and we're going to get to this in just a moment. In verse 19, he says, Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Again, what does Paul mean? The Corinthians might think that Paul... Is engaging in some sort of divine rationalization. Remember, a rationalization is a plausible but untrue excuse of why you do what you do. Paul's desire isn't to excuse himself or simply exonerate himself. Paul is writing, as it were, look what it says, in the presence of God in Christ. What does that mean? Paul's desire is to conduct himself as if God is both judge and jury, as if Christ is present. By the way, in any conflict where two people disagree about something or someone or some issue, in the midst of that conflict, is there a very real God and is there a very real Christ? Is there a God and a Christ Who knows everything about everything, who is completely aware in the midst of every single conflict? What's the right answer? The the right answer is yes. Paul's attention, Paul is in effect conducting himself as if God is the judge and the jury, that Jesus is present, God is present. Paul's attention turns back to them. And so he's saying, I need you to understand something as we're dealing with this issue. I'm dealing with this issue as if Jesus himself were present. And let me tell you my motive. Paul says it's edification. Paul has a keen sense of two things. Number one, his accountability to God. Everything that he says and everything that he does. There's a very God who is present, who is weighing everything that he's saying and everything that he's done. The other thing, in being accountable to God, is his responsibility to those that God has entrusted in his care. And so he says, my goal is to build up the believer. Now this becomes very important for each and every one of us when we face a conflict. We would do well to remember that when we have a conflict with one another, it's to invite the Lord Jesus Christ to be present that Jesus is both Lord and Judge and Mediator, that we speak our grievances honestly and openly and sincerely, knowing that God is able to both discern the content of our hearts and the intent of our hearts, even when we are not. Proud people are quick to blame others. Broken people accept personal responsibility and they're willing to sincerely search their hearts to see whether they have wronged someone or harmed someone or caused something that would bring about a broken friendship or a broken relationship. And this is one of those interesting things about Rosh Hashanah. Again, when people are invited to consider their life and consider their relationships and consider their circumstances and call upon your own conscience and heart to say, have I said something or have I done something to harm someone or injure someone or break some relationship? In Psalm fifty-one, seventeen, remember David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. So Paul admits his motive and claims, We do all things, beloved, for your edification. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe wrote, Correction does much, but encouragement does more. Encouragement after censure is the sun after a shower, unquote. Paul is once again reminding the Corinthians that he's in the business of building up. By the way, sometimes in order to build something up, does something old have to be torn down? If something is dangerous or broken... And it's broken so severely that it can't be repaired. Are there times and circumstances where the whole edifice has to be torn down and you have to start all over? And i got to tell you something. That sometimes building up doesn't always look like building up. Sometimes building up looks like tearing down because in that tearing down process sometimes we only see the tearing down process. And as we're seeing the tearing down process, if that's the only thing that we see and there's no hope or process of a building up process, then it could be so terrifying. Paul's motive remains strengthening the Corinthians in their Christian life. And he writes about this very issue when he speaks to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. Of course, on Sunday mornings, we're far, far away from Romans chapter 12. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. In Romans chapter 12, it says in verse 10, "...be kindly affectionate to one another, with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice." Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And sometimes it's possible, and sometimes it's not possible. Paul admits his preference for peace, but he also admits that peace isn't always possible. But the truth, we're still to work hard at peace. We're to be peacemakers, not troublemakers, And for whatever reason, I find myself in trouble so much. Because people ask me things that I wish that they wouldn't ask me. And then I say things that I wish I hadn't said. Someone asked me today, well, did you hear about that guy who hung himself in prison? What do you think of that? And I say, thank God, he saved hundreds of thousands of dollars to the taxpayer. Possibly millions of dollars. And then I remember what I said on the radio just last week to a person who called in and said, well, what does the Bible have to say about suicide? And then I said, it's never a good idea. So on the radio, I say it's never a good idea. In private, I say, what a great idea when it saved the taxpayer all these monies and he was a scum, slime human being. The truth, though, the most wicked, the most perverse, the most obnoxious human being, God holds out an opportunity for them to be forgiven, cleansed. It never occurred to me to say... I wish he hadn't killed himself because every day that he lived, he could turn from his sin and he could turn to the Savior. He could turn from his wickedness and the polluted, stinking, filthy life that he led. And yes, he lived a life of perversion and wickedness and persistent perversion and wickedness. But people can change. Peace isn't the absence of just simply conflict. Peace is not the absence of discernment or insight. It's not overlooking evil or claiming that evil is good. Peace requires insight and honesty and integrity and a commitment to biblical truth. And we don't want to abandon truth in order to embrace peace because then it becomes a false peace, a pretentious peace that's absent righteousness. Eric Sauer wrote, if you wish to be disappointed, look at others. If you wish to be downhearted, look to yourself. If you lo- wish to be encouraged, look to Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because again, we will remain disappointed and downhearted if we look at each other or we look within ourselves and we refuse to look where we're going to have The greatest opportunity for change and transformation. That's the person of Jesus. And so he hints at the fruit of unrepentant sin. Look in verse 20. He says, for I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish. And that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. In a way, here's what Paul is saying. Get your house in order before I get there. Make sure everything is right before I come. He says, Lest there be contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambition and backbiting and whispering and conceits and tumults. When you look at the text, I'm going to invite you to ask a question. What does Paul Hope to find. Paul hopes to find a group of believers, lovers, believers in Jesus, happily going about their business in Christ. Paul hopes to find a church that has renounced the false teachers and their false teaching that they've embraced. Paul hopes to find a church that has happily embraced his apostolic authority. He wants to come enjoy. He doesn't want to come in judgment. Paul isn't naive. He says, quote, I shall not find you such as I wish. Paul doesn't wish to be grieved. And he will list two kinds of sins. Social sins in verse 20. And sexual sins in verse 21. The factions in the Corinthian church, remember, were listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It would probably do us well, just to flip over there, just for a second, just so we can remind ourselves of what was going on in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul, Paul wrote, Now I plead with you, brethren. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul's position is, I want you to be on the same page and I want you to be going in the same direction. But it might be too much to hope for. Because you see, he knew that they ran the risk of these divisions, of exploding into full-blown contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions. He begins with the word contentions. It's the Greek word eris, E-R-I-S. It's translated strife in the New American Standard. It's translated quarreling in the NIV. But when he says that I will be found lest there be contentions, in what sense? That there is strife or quarreling, in what sense? We still haven't come to a resolution about this issue of apostolic authority. Of whether or not he even has the right to say what he has to say. And then he lists the word jealousies. It's the Greek word... Zealots, you know that word. We have a word that's come into our own language from that word zealot. What is a zealot? A zealot is a person who's passionate about something, whose whole life seems occupied with a particular thing. Cervantes noted that, quote, jealousy sees with opera glasses, making little things big. Dwarves are changed into giants, suspicions into truths. Another person said, in jealousy, there is more of self-love than real love or biblical love. So he warns of contentions and jealousies, outbursts of wrath, thymoi. T-H-Y, M-O-I, thymoi. It's a word that meant a boiling over. It was a really descriptive word in the Greek language. Have you ever been angry or upset about something and you could feel the soft boil inside of you? You could feel the water starting to heat up and then it came to a slow boil and then it came to a raging boil and all of a sudden you've heard of people blowing their... That's what he's talking about. It's elsewhere talked about being an uncontrollable outburst of wrath. Selfish ambitions, erathai. It suggests factions or disputes. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambitions. Spurgeon said, ambition is an enemy to peace in the church. Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence. And that fellow spoiled many a happy church. He talks about backbitings. Kata, lelai. That's two words, a prefix and a suffix. Kata is the act. lalelai is speaking. So it's the act of speaking against. And so it's translated, it translates the word backbiting. And of course, in our own language, backbiting has come to mean speaking about someone, not in front of them, but behind their back. It's one thing to stab a person in the heart when you're looking at them face to face. It's another thing to stab them in the back. And this is what he's talking about whisperings this is an interesting word in the original language it only appears here in the new testament but usually when we think about whisperings it's usually those sort of hidden statements that are barely made just beneath your breath in the hopes that the other person won't hear it we have a different word that we use to describe this word we use the word Gossip Gossip is a word that we use to describe things that are said unfairly about someone else. And so he talks about conceits. Again, and this is a unique word in the Greek New Testament. it's only found here in its singular form. It meant a puffing up. In this text, it's plural. Here, it means swellings. And so I think what it means is swellings of pride. It's where people become full of themselves, swollen with pride. And then he uses the word tumults. Literally, it's a word that means disorders or disturbances. And so when you're looking at these things... Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, backbiting, whispering, conceits, tumults. You go, look, if I want that, I can watch Fox News and CNN. If this is what I want, all I have to do is read the newspaper or go on the internet. If this is what I want, all I have to do is look at my family. Or hopefully you don't say that. But by the way, when you look at this laundry list, is this what you want to find at church? Can you imagine you go to church and this is what you have to look forward to? Backbiting, whispering, conceit, tumults Is that—is that what people who go to church really want? I don't think so. I, I, I think that what Paul is Helping us understand is that when this laundry list of sins characterizes the church that you go to, something is terribly wrong. Something is awful. Something has gone horribly and terribly wrong. We might find the root causes in the cliques that Paul has already criticized. We might find some of the problem in the false teachers and their false teaching. We might find some of the problem in the hypercriticism and the divisive spirit. But Paul has given us hope. Some appear to have already repent. Some appear to have already experienced revival. But what about those who have not repented? And what about those who haven't experienced revival? And what about those who cling to the party spirit? What about those who are still critical? What about those who still embrace the false teachers and their false teaching? What about those people? The fruit of their immaturity and insecurity and carnality... Will eventually poison the church and render it unhealthy. And that's not what you want in a church. You want it to be what Paul intended it. Remember what he said? Here's what I want to do I want to build you up. And so, he talks about the sexual sins in verse 21. Lest, when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lewdness which they have practiced. Now remember what he said earlier. In verse 19, he says, we speak before God in Christ, but we do all things beloved for your edification. I want you to pause for a moment, and I want you to think about who Paul is, what is motivating him. He's motivated to build them up. He loves them. He doesn't want to find them in a condition that will cause Paul shame. William MacDonald writes, Neither did he want to come and be compelled to grieve over many of those who had sinned and not repented of their uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness. Unquote. Jan Darby points out that the chapter began. With a vision of the third heaven as Paul has traveled to a place where there is no sin. And it ends with a picture of sin in the church on the earth. And between the two, the vision of heaven and the sin on the earth is a powerful remedy. The powerful remedy is the power of God in Christ to heal people, to forgive people, to minister to people, to encourage so that when there's injury... Among one another. There can be confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. So once again we're given insight into both the character of Paul. And the contrast between those who were truly proud. And those who were truly broken. Proud people are concerned over the consequences of sin. What will happen if people find out about my sin? Broken people are more concerned Not of the consequences of the sin, but rather of the cause of the sin, the root of the sin. And they want to address the issue at the root. In other words, here's what they're willing to say. They're willing to say, look what has happened. How has this happened? And how can we make this different? And so when Paul writes, many who have sinned before and have not repented. Again, when you look at the text and you see him write those words, many who have sinned before and have not repented, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the people in 1 Corinthians? who were guilty of immaturity and carnality and sensuality and divisiveness. And he told them all about why those things are bad things and how love covers a multitude of sins. And remember, he writes about the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12. And then he writes about the love chapter, the famous love chapter in chapter 13. And then once again, he revisits the spiritual gifting. What's interesting Is he doesn't say. He doesn't tell us who these people are. But I'm going to suggest something to you. When he says, Many who have sinned before and have not repented, I'm going to suggest that these are the people who embrace the laundry list of sins that we've just read about in verse 20 contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, backbiting, whispering, conceits, tumults. In other words, here's what he's basically saying. Actions speak for themselves. If a person's life is marked by consistent contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, backbiting, whispering, conceits, and tumults, I think it's fairly safe to say that this person isn't guided And filled with the Holy Spirit. That they're guided and filled with a different spirit. One possible explanation of who these people might be. Are these are the people who have refused Paul's words. These are the people who have embraced the false teachers false doctrines. These are the people, because they've embraced the false teacher and the false doctrine, that their lives are noted by immaturity and carnality and divisiveness. False teaching invariably leads to false living. That shouldn't come as a shock and a surprise to you, should it? For the person who follows the teacher who says, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do. It doesn't really matter how you think. It doesn't really matter what you say. It doesn't really matter who you hurt. It doesn't really matter what the consequences are of your wicked behavior. How can anybody say those things with a straight face? Do people matter? Do their lives matter? Do their marriages matter? Do their children matter? Paul adds three more sins to the dirty laundry list: uncleanness, fornication, lewdness. The earlier sins have to do with how people treat one another. These sins have to do, deal with sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, uncleanness is a word, A: catharsia. Catharsis is a word that meant cleansing. A makes it exactly the opposite of cleansing, not cleansing. The word meant in the Greek language impure, indulgent, unclean. I think that it may be a reference to the full immersion, think embedded, in the world system In other words, Paul is pointing to those people who haven't come out of this world but remain in the world. The people who remain in a filthy lifestyle of living. And then fornication. It's the Greek word pornea. Most of you are familiar with that word because of the popular word pornography. Pornea meant every kind of sexual immorality. In other words, this was the category where if you think of anything perverse, having to do with sexual behavior, you would put it under this category. Lewdness, aselegia. Again, sensuality, indecency, uncontrolled, undisciplined, unrestrained, lust, and passion. This is a word that just basically said it doesn't matter what your public behavior is like, there are no boundaries. Uncleanness, fornication, lewdness. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 Paul writes, But fornication and all uncleanness, covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. When Paul wrote that in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 when he says, But sexual immorality... And a lifestyle of impurity. And an unhealthy preoccupation with what other people have. This shouldn't even be an issue. When he says, let it not even be named among you. He's not trying to hide their sin or cover up the wickedness. He's saying, it seems impossible to me that these are even issues that we have to talk about. But we live in a world where we do have to talk about it because it's such a huge problem. Because it so dominates so many people's lives, it so controls their thinking and their living. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul wrote, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It seems crazy to me that we're debating issues of homosexuality, transgendered lifestyles, and every kind of weird and wicked sinful practice. My friend Josh McDowell used to say, Love can wait to give. It is lust that can't wait to get. Love and lust are easily discerned. Elizabeth Elliot said, the love of a man and a woman gains immeasurably in power when placed under a divine restraint. In other words, God's love... For his people, and the love that we're supposed to display to one another has a purity. Andrew Murray said, quote, All the sin of heathendom and all the sin in Christendom is but the outgrowth of the one root, God dethroned, self enthroned in the heart of man. And so Paul writes, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented. So here's what Paul is saying. Before he shows up, he wants each and every person who's reading the letter to examine their heart and then examine their life and see if their life style, their language, their communication with one another, their relationships to one another are marked by any of these things. Paul is in effect encouraging them to repent or experience discipline. Paul loves them Paul has done everything he can to turn them from factions, turn them from divisions, turn them from carnality, turn them from sensuality. But now it's up to them. It's up to them to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord, but make no mistake about it. It isn't just simply an act of will where you turn from your sin and you turn to the Lord, but it is the powerful invitation of a real Holy Spirit to come inside of your mind and your heart and your thinking. Because remember, over and over again, Paul is going to encourage the believers to put off certain things and to put on certain things. George Whitfield, the famous preacher of the Great Awakening said quote it is a poor sermon that gives no offense that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself nor with the preacher it was george <laughs> whitfield's way of saying if what i've said doesn't make you hate yourself or hate me then i've possibly failed and i'm not talking about hate yourself in the in, in a lo- lack of self-esteem i'm talking about evaluating the sin in your life and an unwillingness to let it go. And so that's what he's pleading, to let it go. And what are the elements of repentance? It always includes a change of mind. It always includes not just a willingness to turn from the sin, but to change our mind about the sin. And then to change our direction away from the sin. But not just away from the sin, but in the direction of the Lord. All of those elements have to be positively present we allow the love of jesus and the presence of jesus and not the love of sin and the presence of sin to guide our decision making and behavioral direction we understand that repentance may include the decision to turn from sin but even that decision has to be empowered by the act of god whereby he gives us a new heart and a new spirit like it's spoken of in ezekiel chapter 18 verse 31 where he says i'm going to take out your heart of stone and i'm gonna To give you a heart of flesh. And that's one of the ways that you can really know that you're really a Christian. It is that you are genuinely affected by sin. You are genuinely grieved when what you say and what you do hurts your mom, hurts your dad hurts your husband hurts your wife hurts your children hurt the people that you go to school with hurt the people that you go to church with Paul wrote or Peter wrote in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 4 that we become partakers of the divine nature And that it's God who wills and works in our hearts according to his good pleasure in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. The change of mind and the change of heart results in a change of life. And this is how we demonstrate that our repentance is real and true. And one of the beautiful things about Paul the Apostle is his willingness to initiate the path of forgiveness and repair and reconciliation. Note what Paul is doing. Paul isn't saying, I'll wait till they come to me. I'll wait till they recognize that they foolishly refuse to embrace me as the true apostle that I am. And that when they get their head on straight and when they get their heart straight, well, then I'll forgive them and I'll be reconciled to them. Do you know what? The Bible always makes it abundantly clear that each and every one of us have the responsibility to initiate the repair of a relationship that has been broken Remember, remember, Paul is writing this letter. Remember, Paul is making every effort to get to Corinth. Remember that Paul is willing to go to the cross of Calvary and point the Corinthians to the cross of Calvary as the basis of forgiveness and friendship and relationship. And one of the signs of the immature or the carnal believer is his or her unwillingness to initiate the healing, to withhold the forgiveness who basically say whatever injury has occurred because of this broken friendship or broken relationship the least painful thing for me to do is just to give up on our friendship give up on our fellowship give up on our relationship and that's what the vast majority of immature believers do they get up they walk out and they never come back because it's easier for them because immaturity and carnality become a part of their life But Paul refuses to wait. So what can we learn from this short but powerful section of scripture? Remember that conflicts are inevitable. But not all conflicts need be regrettable. What else can we learn? That Paul, in spite of all of the difficulty that he has faced, is initiating a way for people to be reconciled to one another. He does it under the auspices of a willingness to be honest and accountable before God and before Jesus. And when you submit your mind and your heart and the circumstances of the conflict to God and God's word, the chances are that things are going to really work out when you do that. Paul is gentle And I want you to think about this. Paul is gentle to the sinner. But he's never gentle with sin. He knows that sin hurts people. And so what will you do when you face conflict? Let me just give you a couple of things to think about before we have communion. Try for a moment to place yourself in the other person's shoes. When there is some conflict, when there is some problem, when there is some opposition, how hard is it for you to ask yourself, do I bear some personal responsibility for what has happened? And be honest in your answer. And instead of arguing, ask questions. What's at the root of this conflict? What are we arguing about? Are my motives pure? Am I concerned about building up or tearing down, never to build up? And respond as if Jesus were sitting right next to you. Am I really seeking peace? Am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Do I want to do what is right Do I want to be totally honest? Am I acknowledging my role in whatever is going on? Am I interested in retaliation or restoration? Am I treating this person as a lifelong friend? Or a person that I can't wait to get rid of and that I never have to speak with and I never have to deal with ever again? And again, ask the question Have I wronged this person? Am I truly looking for a reason to forgive and restore, or am I content to lose this person's friendship, fellowship, relationship? And then also remember the verse that we spoke of in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, as far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. And let's be honest, when Paul wrote those words, he had less than a perfect peace with at least some of the people in Corinth. When Paul wrote the words to the Romans, he was writing the book of Romans to, from Corinth. But Paul isn't willing to abandon his love for the Corinthians so easily. Paul persistently pursues them. Paul searches for ways to experience healing. He's looking for ways to mend the broken friendship and fellowship so that they can go forward. Would you say that that's what characterizes your life? Would you say that that's the way that you go about solving problems? Resolving conflicts. In a moment, we're going to have communion. But there is no greater example in all of human history than the broken friendship and fellowship that was experienced by man in his disobedience and rebellion against God. And so the Lord God Himself orchestrates all of human history. He creates all of human history so that a Messiah can come and be born and live and die so that all of your sin can be forgiven, so that grace and mercy can characterize your life, and so that friendship and fellowship and relationship with God isn't something that you have to dream about, but something that you can experience in all of its wonder and glory. That's what the Bible means when it says, we love him because he first loved us. That's why Paul will write, here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He wasn't looking for a reason to send you to hell but was preparing himself a sacrifice so that you would go to heaven so in a moment we're going to have communion i want you to just hold the elements until we all have the opportunity to partake together let's pray heavenly father Lord, we live in a broken world, in a wicked world, in a sinful world, where people injure us and where we injure others. There's probably times when there is injury, absent blame, but Heavenly Father, we know that when we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with you, that much of our problems stem from the fact that that we've done something wrong, that we've said something wrong, that we have hurt someone. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring to our remembrance those people that we've injured, not for the purpose of dwelling in a sea of guilt and self-loathing, but for an opportunity to make it right, so that we can fulfill the law of Jesus, that we can confess our sins to one another, and we can forgive one another, and we can be reconciled to one another. And Heavenly Father, we know that that will never happen unless we're willing to admit our guilt. And embrace the forgiveness and the hope that you have for us. And again, Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his love. We thank you that Jesus is willing, his willing death provides peace and hope and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Lord, we pray that we would be gracious people people who love you and who love each other, willing to resolve conflicts and solve problems so that Jesus can be glorified and so that we can be edified one to another. And so again, Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your love and your forgiveness. Thank you for hope, a meaningful hope, a living hope because Jesus is alive. In Jesus' name.